Vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That is how the book of Ecclesiastes begins. And it continues in this vein over 12 difficult chapters. In this little book, the preacher, who's most likely Solomon, king of Israel, he takes a long, hard look at the world and he says, what a mess. Wealth, pleasure, success, creativity, the search for knowledge, and even good works are all crushed under the relentless refrain, vanity, all is vanity. For when the preacher looks for meaning under the sun, he can't find any. Now that phrase, under the sun, is essential for understanding Ecclesiastes. As I mentioned two weeks ago, it appears 29 times in these 12 chapters. And it refers to all that we see and experience in the world. It's the preacher's shorthand way of saying that when he speaks about life, he's considering this world and this world only. He's evaluating our existence using only what we know under the sun. In this book, he probes relentlessly into the promises that life makes us, and he comes up empty. He pursues one potential path after another, only to show that each one of these paths ends in death. And he does so because he wants us to feel the ache for something more than what we can discover under the sun. So at its core, Ecclesiastes is intended to be a work of deconstruction. The preacher wants to destroy the myth of human progress and expose the emptiness of secularism. He wants to stamp out lazy, half-hearted religion that tries to have it all, but with a little bit of God on the side. He wants to undermine each and every one of our false hopes. Ultimately, however, He doesn't want to send us careening into depression. He wants to point us to God, to pull us above and beyond the sun, to the one who created it. By doing so, he wants us to approach these short lives that we live with a fresh perspective as chastened, humbled, God-centered creatures. So as we continue our series on Ecclesiastes this morning, we're going to take a look at one of these areas of life that the preacher wants to deconstruct and then reframe for us. And that is our work, our work. So in this little book, work encompasses all paid and unpaid labor. It includes raising children, studying at school, part-time paid employment, volunteering, and full-time employment. It even includes all of the things you get up to in your retirement that you can't believe you're so busy with all the time. Now the preacher of Ecclesiastes was the king of Israel. His work was the building and the upkeep of a nation. There are few types of work we can imagine that are more demanding, valuable, and profitable than this. And yet at times, he had an incredibly grim view of what he was doing. We get his perspective in chapter 2, verses 18 to 23. You can find it on page 554 of the Red Bibles, and I hope you'll turn there with me. This is what the preacher, the king of Israel, writes. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who'll come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. 
This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who's toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. In the verses just prior to this, the preacher has been reflecting on his mortality, the certainty of his own death. When he turns his attention to work in verse 18, death still hangs over him. And so he wonders, understandably, what will my work have accomplished when I'm dead and gone? And the answer that sends him spiraling into bitterness is that someone else is going to enjoy the fruit of his labors when he is rotting in the grave. And that causes him to ask, in verses 22 to 23, if all of the hard work, stress, sorrow, and sleepless nights are worth it. And his conclusion is pretty much no. His entire approach to work was misguided. And it was ultimately empty. That at least is his conclusion right here. But you know, this isn't the only place in Ecclesiastes where the preacher talks about work. Earlier in this same chapter, by contrast, he mentions how much he enjoyed his work, building parks and palaces in Jerusalem. And you see this throughout Ecclesiastes, this back and forth towards work and labor. So in our staff discussion, we, all, we always look at these passages as a staff on Tuesday morning together before we preach on them on, on Sunday. And in our staff discussion of this passage last week, Daniel Lee observed that the preacher has kind of a bipolar view of work. Sometimes he loves it and sometimes he hates it. And both perspectives, they seem a little bit off, don't they? The fascinating thing about both extremes is that an unhealthy love of work and an unhealthy loathing of work are actually rooted in the same set of lies. So in this life under the sun, we have been taught to believe certain things about our work. We've been told that our work is what makes us who we are. We've also been told that it's the means by which we leave a legacy. And we've been told it's how we can get ahead of everyone else in the game of life. And each one of these is a deceptive half-truth. So when you meet someone new uh, for the first time, one of the first questions you can count on being asked is, so what do you do for a living? Uh, we ask this because it's a helpful way to get to know another person. We also do this because in our culture, what we do for a living is one of the defining features of who we are. We find ourselves, our identities, in our work. So five weeks ago, you all, all know this, Tom Brady announced that he was retiring from the NFL. He said that he wanted to slow down and spend more time with his family. And after a month of family vacation, he unretired. 
Now, there was plenty of snickering online about how spending time with kids was more terrifying than staring down a defensive line. <laughs> but my guess is that the truth was elsewhere. My guess, in all honesty, is that Tom Brady was terrified. My guess is that he felt completely and utterly lost. For the last 25 years, he has given every ounce of his energy to being the greatest quarterback of all time. Every single moment, waking and sleeping, has been maximized. And he succeeded incredibly. He is the greatest of all time. To step away from that, however, it means stepping away from himself. My guess is that Tom Brady was terrified of looking in the mirror and not knowing the man who was staring back at him. Now, we may not always be explicit about it, but in American society, a person's identity is dependent on their work. Tom Brady is a football player. I'm a pastor. You're a mother. Take these things away from this, and who are we? Talk to most college seniors, and the stress that they feel over getting a job is less about supporting themselves financially, and it's more about finding themselves. No job means no identity. Of course, our work, paid or unpaid, is an important part of who we are, but it doesn't make us who we are. The preacher puts it in incredibly stark terms. If the poor guy and I are both going to end up in the ground, then what difference is there between us? So one of the lines we've been taught is that work is our identity. And we've also been told that our work is the way that we can leave a legacy. Now this half-truth has the appeal of being less self-centered than the previous one, right? We work in order to leave the world better than it was before us for those who come behind us. But this is the deceptive half-truth that seems to get under the preacher's skin the most. He knows that the kingdom he leaves behind may be squandered by a fool, one of his own sons. His legacy may evaporate in the span of just a few years, and then what? Well, how many stories have we heard of wealthy men who built up a fortune uh, and then leave it to their children only for the next generation to waste it or tear each other to pieces fighting over it. The legacy doesn't ensure stability or comfort. It means the dissolution and destruction of the family. There are no guarantees that all of our hard work will form a legacy for our families. Well, finally, we're told that work is the way that we get ahead in the game of life. Preacher puts it more bluntly in the next chapter. In, in verse 4 of chapter 4, he says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity. For many of us, work is a, is a form of competition. Competition is, is fun. And competition can be really healthy. But if our entire approach to work is an effort to get ahead or to keep up with everyone else, it becomes an endless grind with no reward in sight because there will always be someone else who has more toys. 
Anna Sherbakova won gold in women's figure skating at the Beijing Olympics just a few weeks ago. After a lifetime of hard work, she had reached the pinnacle of her sport. But when she spoke to reporters afterwards, she was torn between emotions. This is what she said. She said, this has been what I've been working toward every day. I still can't comprehend what has happened. But on one hand, I feel this emptiness inside. Even when you come out on top, emptiness awaits. We look to our work to discover our identity, to build a legacy, or simply to get ahead in life. And to each of these ambitions, the preacher says, vanity. But at the end of the day, he's not totally down on work. He wants to expose these lives that we believe about it, and he wants his wealthy, educated audience to reevaluate why they put so much emphasis on their work. But he doesn't think that the goal should be a life entirely free of work. And we see this in the next paragraph, verse 24. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. This paragraph following the one prior, it feels like theological whiplash, doesn't it? God's only been mentioned once before in Ecclesiastes, back in verse 13 of chapter 1. But here he's mentioned three times in three verses. The preacher seems to sense the need for a bit of perspective after the doom and gloom of his previous paragraph. And the point he wants to make is simple. Work only makes sense, and it can only be enjoyed when you look above and beyond the sun to the God who created us. At this point, we need to take a step back and we need to ask what the Old Testament teaches us about work more broadly. And the answer is captured in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. So in Genesis chapter 2, when God creates Adam, we are told that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So God made us with work in mind. It's part of why we're here. It's a good and God-given thing. In Genesis 3, however, after Adam and Eve's spectacular fall, God says, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Because of sin, our work is cursed. It's a cause of pain, a source of trouble, and it's a constant reminder of our fallenness. So we've been made to work, to steward God's creation. But because of our sin, our work has been cursed. The preacher's bipolar approach that we observed earlier, well, it makes sense, doesn't it? Sometimes we experience work as we were meant to, as God's purpose for us, and it's great. Other times it's a curse and we're miserable. So what do we do with this? Well, in this final paragraph of Ecclesiastes 2, the preacher gives us some instructions 
instructions on how to approach our work as a result of this tension. And the first lesson is this. We have to receive our work as a gift. We have to receive our work as a gift. The ability to be productive in work is a gift from God by which we share in his identity as the creator of all things, not by which we create or craft or find our own. As he says in verse 24, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Works a gift, and we must receive it as such. But the second lesson follows swiftly on the first. We need to remember work won't make you happy or give your life meaning. If you try to find your identity in your work, to find your purpose in life, you'll be lost. If you look to your work as a way of justifying your existence, you're gonna come up empty. If you work to leave a legacy, chances are someone else is gonna snatch it away. Work may give you moments of joy, but it cannot give your life meaning. We are to receive our work as a gift, but not ask more of work than it's able to give us. Verses 24 to 26, they're, they are the first of several passages scattered throughout Ecclesiastes that share a recurring theme of learning to enjoy life under the sun in spite of its vanity. And this enjoyment, it only comes by looking above and beyond the sun to the hands of the God who created us. You know, at the end of 1 Corinthians, you may remember the Apostle Paul quotes a popular slogan of his day that summed up the kind of pleasure-seeking hedonism of so much of the Roman world. And the slogan was, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Now the preacher here in Ecclesiastes, he says something superficially very similar, but profoundly different when he writes, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. The first slogan describes a kind of hedonism that believes that if this is all there is, then while we're here, we ought to make the most of it by grasping all the pleasure we can from life. Preacher's approach is different because he recognizes that there's more to life than what we experience under the sun. When we come to terms with our own mortality and we set the empty promises of the world aside, our attitude toward the good things around us changes. Instead of grasping at them in a desperate effort to find meaning and fulfillment, we can receive them with open hands as gifts. Gifts that pale in comparison with what we'll one day enjoy in the presence of our Creator, but gifts that we can nonetheless enjoy today with the sense of true pleasure and gratitude. And that's fundamentally different from indulgence. The under the sun approach is to live for the moment. The beyond the sun approach is to enjoy the moment. And you can only do this properly if you understand that the present moment finds meaning because of eternal realities. Without the promise of eternity, the present is only vanity. And our enjoyment of it is always tainted 
with bitterness. At the end of Matthew 11, uh, Jesus was speaking to the crowds, most likely by the Sea of Galilee. These were hardworking people, exhausted by their labor, worn down by the constant burden of Roman oppression. And Jesus said to them, he said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I don't know where you're coming from this morning. Work may be a joy for you these days, or it may be a drudgery. You may be retired, but somehow feel overwhelmed by all of the work you have to do at home. You may feel underutilized, longing for a productive way to serve. We all experience our work or lack of work in different ways at different seasons. And in each and every one of these seasons, Jesus says to us, come to me, come to me. He invites us to rest in him, but also to take up his yoke, to work with him. It's only by working with him and in him that our daily labor makes sense and our lives find meaning. Let's pray. Lord God, may we not fall prey to these deceptive half-truths that we find our identity through our work, that we leave our legacy through our work, and that we get ahead and win the game of life through our work. May we instead turn to you, find rest in you, and learn to work alongside you as you do your great work of redemption in this world. We pray this for the honor and glory of your name. Amen.